Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's Wednesday, May 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. New York has a red flag law on the books that should have prevented the shooter in Buffalo from buying the firearm he used in the assault. In 2021, when the gunman was still a minor, he was flagged for making comments about murder-suicide at school and taken for a mental health evaluation. Not deemed a risk at the time, he was let go and no continued effort was made to keep guns out of his hands. Melissa Chan, reporter at NBC News, joins us for what went wrong in this case. Next, Sweden and Finland are formally trying to join NATO. Having remained neutral for many years, the war in Ukraine has changed many attitudes in strengthening defenses against Russia. Turkey has voiced skepticism in letting the two countries join, but many think that they're just holding out for other concessions. NATO requires unanimous agreement for new nations to join. Michael Birnbaum, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what to know. Finally, we are seeing a mad dash for the ultra-rich to hire on private butlers, maids, and estate managers. Pre-pandemic, a salaried housekeeper in the Hamptons could earn up to $65,000. Now, many say the minimum is $85,000 or more. Tracking along with some other pandemic working trends, these workers have a lot more power than they used to. Noah Kirsch, wealth and power reporter at the Daily Beast, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What was used was not able to be purchased legally in the state of New York. The basic gun was, but the high-capacity magazine associated with it had to come from another state because it is illegal in the state of New York. Joining us now is Melissa Chen, reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Well, let's continue to explore what happened with the mass shooting in Buffalo. You know, a lot of questions come up, obviously, in the aftermath of these things, and it takes time to go through all of it. One of the main things, the gun that was used in this was purchased legally by 18-year-old Peyton Gendron. Now, the thing to understand is we've talked about this already, too. Last year, in 2021, when he was a minor, he was subjected to a mental health evaluation because he had said some threatening things at his school. But that did not translate into him not being able to purchase a gun despite New York having what is called a red flag law. So, uh, Melissa, help us walk through some of this. Let's start off with what the red flag law is and does, and then we'll get into the specific situation here. 
New York's red flag law was enacted in 2019. It empowers school administrators, including teachers, law enforcement officials, prosecutors, and family members to pursue court intervention when they believe they know someone who is at high risk of harming themselves or others. Under the law, a judge could very quickly issue what's called an extreme risk protection order. And by doing that, it would mean that this person who is at high risk would not be able to purchase any firearms If they already have a firearm, they would have to surrender those firearms and they would have to, the the law would also bar them from any attempts at possessing or purchasing firearms. Now, my understanding is that there is a pretty high barrier of evidence needed. You need to have a lot of solid stuff to go on this to be able to ban the person. Now, let's get into the specific situation. At the time when he was flagged and and they did take him in for mental health evaluation, apparently it was a teacher that asked him, you know, what are your plans for after school, after you graduate? And he said something to the effect of murder-suicide. That's what triggered the whole thing. Right. That's right. So it was June 2021. The school year was coming to an end. And when a teacher asked the class their plans, he had made comments that he wanted to murder and commit suicide. At this very chilling remark, the teacher alerted law enforcement, which detained the suspects and subjected him to a mental evaluation. But he was ultimately cleared, which paved the way for him to legally buy the rifle that he's accused of using in the shooting just 11 months later. And the governor of New York has asked for an investigation into what's going on through all this. But so far, what we've heard is, you know, just him just saying that isn't specific enough. You know, it wasn't a threat Mm -hmm. made at a person or the school even itself. And that's kind of where we're stuck, right? It wasn't enough to trigger the next part, right, which would be a court proceeding to uh, ban him from being able to purchase and own guns. Right. So the governor said at a hearing from um, state police that there was nothing, quote unquote, actionable that could have been done. Not a specific threat, but experts say you don't need a specific threat to trigger this law. The fact is that no official involved in the investigation in June initiated a court process that could have helped prevent the suspect from buying the rifle. You know, and the questions now arise, what happens? And I know a lot of uh, local lawmakers in there in New York are saying, well, now is the time to see what went wrong and, and if there's any adjustments to the law, right? But I would think qualifying for a mental health evaluation should at least trigger some type of ban for a limited amount of time. I'd also be curious if they just did kind of a quick check in with him there at the hospital or did they dig into social media and other things which you know he had an online presence maybe they could have gleaned some more off of that so how deep the search goes when something like this is initiated is also in question exactly those are the questions that the governor has asked for answers to what exactly transpired there what led them to determine he was not a threat what led them to determine he could be cleared these are all questions that have still not been answered What has been uh, the reaction from uh, gun safety advocates and even gun proponents now, uh, you know, in this? Because the discussion also also becomes part, well, do these uh, red flag laws even save people? And I think in New York, they've had uh, 1,464 extreme risk protection orders go into place since the law was enacted. So they say, yes, uh, this has protected people. That is very right. Since 
the law was implemented in the summer of 2019, more than 1,400 extreme risk protection orders have been issued. In the first year alone, there were 530 orders issued. And while there's no way to really measure whether any one order helps avoid a specific tragedy, experts cite peer-reviewed evidence that shows that red flag laws in Indiana and Connecticut have prevented gun deaths, including suicides and homicides. What went wrong here, experts are saying is, you know, it could have been because the state police might have not known about the red flag law and their, you know, ability to ask for the court order, or they might have just not done a deep enough investigation to find any evidence that warranted them to do that. Melissa Chen, reporter at NBC News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. By any objective standard, both Finland and Sweden bring a great deal to the NATO alliance, strengthens the alliance. Joining us now is Michael Birnbaum, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, wanted to get a quick update on what's going on uh, in Ukraine and the war with Russia. Obviously, there's a lot of NATO news that's going around. What we just saw most recently is Ukraine forces finally agreed to negotiate a surrender in Mariupol at the steel plant. It's one of the last places that they were holding out there against Russian forces. So Russia has taken over that area. 
But uh, we're looking at uh, some other movement in the area. Uh, most notably, Sweden and Finland are seeking NATO membership. And uh, we're seeing all sorts of stuff happen on that front. It seems like Vladimir Putin was, you know, not so expressive on what's going on there. It seemed like he was, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, okay with it. But Turkey, who is a NATO member, was wary of le- letting them in. So, uh, Michael, what's going on? What's the state of affairs going on right now? So both Sweden and Finland have decided to abandon their decades-long, and in, in the case of Sweden, uh, centuries-long adherence to uh, neutrality and, and, and holding apart from entangling military alliances. They view Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a kind of destabilizing event in European history and that their security will be better served by being part of NATO rather than being apart from NATO, NATO-friendly, I guess you could say. It's really a big shift. Until February, public opinion in both countries was actually quite against joining NATO. So it's, it's startling to see how quickly things have changed. And as you said, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, in the past, he's been quite negative about the possibility that Finland and Sweden could join Finland has a very long, uh, more than 800-mile border with Russia, so it is a big shift, and it means that Russia's uh, frontier with NATO has just about doubled, or it will once once Finland joins. But Putin on, on Monday said that, you know, that it wasn't the biggest problem in the world for him, that he accepted it, that Russia wasn't going to take drastic action unless there were major new uh, stationing of NATO troops, non-Swedish, non-Finnish troops on those countries' territory, which which both have said they're, they're not interested yeah. in happening. So pretty subdued response. And on Turkey, uh, Turkey, a NATO member, a NATO member since the 1950s, has in fact said that it does not view the membership business positively. That seems to be probably a kind of negotiating position. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan looks like he probably wants to extract concessions from both the United States and other NATO members in order for Turkey to stand aside and and grant membership. But I think that generally officials expect that some way or another, Turkey will ultimately be a yes on membership. And you need unanimity. So that's why that's important. You know, it's just pretty amazing to see the shift in what's going on, right? You mentioned Finland and Sweden just, uh, you know, being out of this for so long and this war specifically changing those attitudes now, right? We saw that even with Germany, right? Uh, Investing so much more money in military uh, after this happened. You know, the threat of a stronger Russia has really concerned everybody in Europe and the European Union. And even for Sweden and Finland, they've been, I guess what you could call NATO partners. They've participated in certain military practices and whatnot, but they just haven't been full-fledged members. So, I mean, they've kind of been skirting around it for a long time anyways. So Sweden does not border Russia. Finland does. Finland has always been uh, nervous about Russia. It has fought wars with Russia. It has an extremely robust military, but it had felt that its best defense against Russia and the thing that would keep it as a country safe Uh, In the past, it felt it was being not part of NATO, but being so ready to fight a war that Russia wouldn't dare to invade. And I think that 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 thinking changed with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
the feeling that Putin is capable of miscalculation, that Putin is capable of bloody wars with its neighbors, and that, you know, from the Finnish perspective, they felt that they needed the full nuclear-tipped security blanket of NATO. And that was a bad mixed metaphor, but anyway, you get what I mean. They felt that they would be safer inside the alliance than alongside it. Um, so that really, it, it is a, a major shift. And Russia right now, it, it isn't really able to do anything concretely to fight back. Its military is tied up and bogged down yeah. in Ukraine. It can't do a lot much further north to do anything in response. You know, and the interesting juxtaposition of all of this, right? Ukraine begging to be part of NATO, obviously for a lot of uh, for a lot of very, you know, reasons of them they make sense, right? They were hoping not to get invaded and all, but Finland and Sweden in a much easier position to get in there. And and like I said, just uh, the weird juxtaposition of uh, Ukraine still kind of being on its own despite all the aid that they're getting. There has historically been caution about admitting Ukraine, and there, there remains caution because the fear is that Ukraine to Russia is so integrated in Russian identity, as, as we see, for better or for worse. I mean, Ukrainians don't like that, but the Russians clearly view it as something special and apart from other European countries. And also the Russian military, you know, they have a major naval base in Crimea. Uh, they ended up annexing Crimea in 2014 against Ukraine's will. But that the risks of admitting Ukraine into NATO would very much increase the risk of a direct confrontation between NATO and the United States on one side and, and Russia on the other. And, and that could very quickly end up in a nuclear confrontation. Nobody yeah, wants that. Definitely. So that is why, you know, Sweden and Finland are, are different, even though I think a lot of people in NATO clearly very sympathetic to Ukraine and very much helping Ukraine militarily right now. Michael Birnbaum, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. As one example, a housekeeper a couple of years ago might have made $65,000 a year if they were lucky enough to have a full-time salary. These days you're seeing a minimum of $85,000 to $90,000 a year. Joining us now is Noah Kirsch, wealth and power reporter at The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Thanks for having me. Well, always love to uh, take a look into the life of the rich and famous. And you wrote a story about uh, the gold rush right now for butlers and maids to the super rich. And it's kind of funny because it tracks along with what's been going on with the pandemic, where a lot of workers right now hold a lot more power in this stuff. And the same thing goes for these uh, uh, private butlers. You know, and we can broaden it out to estate managers. They're responsible for a lot of different things, but they can be making some pretty good money right now, and they're demanding more money as well. So, Noah, tell us a little bit more about it. I think what you said is exactly correct, and it's also a lens a little bit into the alternative reality that generally takes place in the world of these billionaires in terms of the scale of the finances. So what we are seeing right now is that because you have huge numbers of billionaires and centimillionaires moving to enclaves like the Hamptons, or at least spending a lot more time there, it's creating really big demand for the army of people who work for them. They're chefs and butlers and maids, like you said. And so as one example, a housekeeper a couple of years ago might have made $65,000 a year if they were lucky enough to have a full-time salary. These days you're seeing a minimum of 85000 to $90,000 a year. 
and workers who are essentially refusing to work on a seasonal basis or an hourly basis. They want more job security. High-end nannies can pull north of $110,000, which is great. You spoke to some private butlers and estate managers. I mean, they're saying that they can make, you know, $500,000, $600,000, depending on how many estates they're handling, you know, properties and whatnot. So it can be very lucrative if, if you're getting in the right spot, at least. That's right. The numbers are pretty staggering. Bearing in mind, of course, that $600,000 to a billionaire effectively is a write-off. And these people, in some cases, are working six days a week, maybe 15 hours a day, but they're on call 24 hours a day, whatever is needed. That's definitely one of the things, long hours, long days, especially if you're managing multiple properties. And none of these people really make bones about it. They get that the hours are long and grueling, but you can get the, the pay incentives the longer you're there. That's one of the things that a lot of them mentioned, you know, the time that you spend with the, the family and those clients, wages can go up. And then there's a lot of perks as well. That's right. And, and it's really a word of mouth industry in a lot of ways. You might have one client who you start as a assistant butler, for example, or you help drive their cars and maybe you work your way up. And after a few years, you're making six figures and they'll refer you to a, a billionaire friend in another city. But there's definitely potential to make a lot of money. No question. Tell me a little bit more about the business, because a number of the people that you spoke to, they might do this for their jobs. They might be a state manager, butler, whatnot. But they're also, you know, have these businesses, the recruiting businesses and, and, and hiring businesses where they're connecting the clients to these people. Yeah. If you're someone who hasn't worked in the industry before, most likely, unless you're responding to a specific job posting, you would have to go through one of these staffing firms. And once you've broken in, maybe through word of mouth, you can just hop around on your own. But if you're a person who runs a staffing agency, right now you're probably seeing a huge increase in, in business. One person who operates uh, in the Hamptons in New York and in Europe told me that their business had more than doubled, nearly tripled in just the last two years. One of the things that uh, I was also interested in here is because uh, we're you know talking about butlers and maids and all that, but the high-end nanny part of this thing is also a big thing. And, you know, we hear a lot about that, but, you know, not a lot of us that maybe don't go that route <laughs> don't know how it works, but it was just kind of a funny pandemic thing too, where, you know, a lot of the nannies might have their routines with the kids, teaching them stuff, uh, reinforcing things and uh, pandemic hit and a lot of these parents are spending more time at home and there was frustration there. They're disrupting now their normal workforce. So these are not just babysitters or someone who's watching the kids for a couple hours a day. These are what you might call governesses. Some of them are educated at Oxford or Cambridge. They might have master's degrees. They teach etiquette lessons. It's really the ultra premium nanny category, which, of course, few people have access to. But talking to one of the agencies, they were telling me that, that nannies were getting frustrated and burning out during the pandemic. Because, like you said, they had this structure that they were relying on in terms of raising the kids. And then all of a sudden, you add the parents to the equation, it, it completely upends everything. So to combat that, one of the things that's changed is the hour structure. So now nannies might work four days on or seven days on, and then they'll have an equal number of days off. And it can make $110,000, $115,000 a year or more. Yeah. Noah Kirsch. Wealth and Power Reporter at The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.